0: Welcome to Essential Ethics and the next podcast in our series, Deciding with Children. How should we involve children in decision making about their care when they have cancer? What sort of decisions can they make? Can they refuse treatment? These are the issues we'll explore in this podcast, deciding with children when the stakes are high. I am your podcast host, Professor John Massey, clinical lead of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. To help us answer these difficult questions, I'm joined by Dr Molly Williams, children's oncologist and palliative care specialist at Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Molly.
1: Thanks so much, John. It's really exciting to be here.
0: Well, it's nice to be back. Remember a fantastic podcast we had in our first series, Classic Conundrums.
1: I remember it well. (laughs) It was also very enjoyable.
0: (laughs) And I'm also joined by Jane Harrison, a clinical nurse specialist in the oncology service at Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Jane.
2: Thank you, John. Thanks for having me.
0: Molly, I'm going to throw to you first. Should we let children and young people make decisions when they have cancer?
1: So, John, I think that all of us in oncology would say that children should have some agency when we're talking to them about their cancer treatment. Um, I think that there are some decisions that they should definitely participate in, that they definitely will participate in much of the time. And often children will will have a, a say in participating in the kind of treatment that they'll have moving forward. The difficulty comes when children... Are trying to make decisions that maybe they don't necessarily have the capacity to fully understand and that puts a great responsibility on us to to bring children along in their understanding so that they can participate in in a way that's kind of meaningful to them um, but also in a way that's meaningful to their future life and their future well-being um, as well so certainly we'd strive for children to to be active in in decision making um, but they're not necessarily going to get the final say, particularly when they're littler, <laughs> and p- particularly if they're asking for things that actually aren't in their best interest in a big picture
0: point of view. So it sounds like, Molly, you do think the answer is yes, we should let children make decisions when they have cancer. And you're, a, you're a doctor, so what I might do is ask the same question to Jane and see what your perspective is. Jane, do you think that children should be allowed to make decisions when they have cancer?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think they need to be involved and have some choice. You know, it might not always, um, they might not have total control, but they need to have some involvement and some choice about the way things are going and the way we're doing things, the way they're being treated, procedures. I think I think it's really important because if they get scared and they back off and they say no, it's not safe for the proceduralists, for the nurses, for 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 everyone, and it can be very traumatic. So I think it's important that they have some involvement in the way that they, you know, that we're going to go ahead and treat them. That's what
0: I love about essential ethics, we've already got to the core of the problem, and <laughs> I think, you know, Molly used the word agency, and you use the word control, and obviously, I think they're describing something similar. But there's also something slightly different uh, about that, and I think one of the one of the points that you've raised already, Jane, is that that makes things go well, which is good for them, good for their parents and the staff. And there's lots of stakeholders here. And I think that's an instrumental good of letting them in and getting them involved. But Molly, also talked about actually an intrinsic good, that it's actually good for them and the way their longer life Mm. is going to go. And I think that that's another fascinating aspect to deciding with children and what it might bring to treatment, cancer is a very scary place for people, even like me who who work here at the hospital, but not in that in that space. Molly, have you got some examples or someone you might think of, um, you know, who, who's been making decisions or asked to make decisions? Um, remembering that, um, I think the examples we, we'll make today and think of today are really composites; they're not one specific. Person,
1: yeah, absolutely, John. I mean, you know, the the examples that come to mind are often um, examples where where there are a terribly traumatic decisions to be made, um, or or really stressful decisions to be made, and there might be some resistance or some difference of opinion between the the child and perhaps their their parents or or, or us as clinicians about what the best path forward is. I'm thinking about a young person um, who had a really nasty bone tumour in the leg Um, and uh, it it was clear that this tumour was really endangering the limb and that there was a reasonable likelihood that the tumour would be um, so aggressive that it, it might cause fungation, uh, come through the skin, um, and this would be an absolutely awful experience for this young person. And so a, a, there 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 was the the opportunity for a surgical um, option, which was amputation. Now, this young person in the first instance was horrified by the concept of amputation and very, very resistant, as too was their, their mother, actually. Whereas the father, as a very practical person, felt that um, clearly the path forward was to avoid this awful outcome. And the young person was just desperate in themselves and and in great fear and concern about this path forward. And the the strategy for for understanding the young person's viewpoint and allowing them some degree of, um, of agency and decision making was really just to try and slow down our discussion. To give the young person the opportunity to express what their concerns were, um, what their understanding of the procedure was, and what they what their understanding of their disease overall and the future pathway of that disease was um, and and just trying to give them time to see what the different pathways forward might look like, a pathway where we Um, where where we paused and did not go ahead with amputation, but with that very substantial risk of a really unpleasant outcome in the limb. A pathway where we moved quickly to amputation, knowing that this will be distressing and stressful for them, but with the hope that we could give them a prolonged period of disease-free time. Um, And then a pathway where we tried some other more experimental type options, but with a low chance of success in that space. And ultimately with a, a slowed down approach where the child was able to um, to really understand what those pathways were, um, she made a very firm decision to move quickly to amputation despite that being in the first instance something that she was desperately afraid of because she was able to see that the, uh, that the other pathways were much more traumatic from a big picture point of view for her. Um, and so I guess that to me is that's that's just one of the situations that we see, I guess not infrequently, is these really difficult decisions that we would like the, the child to be a part of so that they can understand um what what's to come for them. Um, and knowing that that it's it's actually it, it's actually something really important that they be able to have a say in whether or not this procedure goes ahead. Um really just time and communication, I think, are the answers for getting kids into a space where they can think meaningfully about their future and think meaningfully about their treatment pathway.
0: That's a, it's an amazing example, Molly, because there's so much that's actually gone on there. And one of the things we're doing in this series is operationalising, deciding with children. But I'm also thinking as you speak, is not just deciding with children when the stakes are high, but when time is of the essence. Mm. And I think you know, in, in a general shared decision-making model, time is often the limitation uh, for physicians. That's why I'm going to second look, look at Molly. <laughs> um, but also I think thinking that as you've started that, you, you've asked, you've slowed it down. You're asking the kid as well as you may be asking the parents what they know about the situation, finding out a little bit about them and what sort of information they're ready to receive and then ask checking in again to see if they understand what's going on and the way they want information and then starting to present some some pathways to do that. Imagine, though, Molly, um, that Jane might be involved in some of this, which is sort of why she's here on Essential Ethics. Jane, would you like to comment on that scenario? So
2: this is a really good example. Um, Right from the start, it was clear that both parents weren't on the same page about including this young person in the discussions and telling her that she had a cancer. So that was difficult to work with at, at the beginning. But getting to know her... It was obvious she, she was she was frightened. She was scared. Um, she would look at me, and I so I kept asking her, "Do you want to be part of this discussion?" And I would go back to the parents. I think she might want to listen. What do you think? And as time went on, they agreed, and um, the mother tended to back away from the conversations and let let the father help take take her into the discussion. And I noticed that, you know, she relaxed more. Everything seemed a lot more open and even though it was scary, she was hearing it properly. And so, yeah, like Molly said, she was involved in the decision-making. Sometimes too, though, you have to be almost brutally honest and say, you know, the reason we we're offering amputation here we want to do amputation is this tumour is growing so fast we're scared it's going to spread to the rest of your body and this could ultimately you know you could die from this and you need sometimes to use those words to make it more obvious to the child but not rushing in but you know just gently gently bringing that about this didn't all happen in one conversation it was several conversations over days and weeks you know Clearly, we were starting to run out of time. She was progressing on treatment, so we knew treatment wasn't working. Um, but then the next conversations, she understood: "were This is about saving my life." Then I want to take my I want my leg off, and she agreed. It was really difficult for the mother to see her agree. It was really difficult. The mother didn't want it, um, but she agreed. So we kept, we we continued on. We talked about. Doing the surgery, what that would be like for her, I think the preparation was pretty, pretty good, as good as it can be for a high amputation. But then, of course, we still have to go on with further treatment of some description, and what's that going to look like? And she also understood that, but was worried. She was worried, you know, is it going to be the chemo that you gave me before? But it wasn't. It made her so sick; she didn't like that. We were talking about clinical trials. Um, and Dad was very keen. Again, Mum not so keen. But I think that you know, I I, I don't know. I I got the sense that she sort of went with Dad. But did she really want to proceed with this this trial? It was that was hard to really determine. And I then found that it was really difficult to have the time alone with her to be able to really you know, find out exactly how she was feeling about it. I relied very heavily on Dad and Dad's opinion. But I think her choice around the habitation was very brave, and I do feel that she was very much involved in that discussion.
0: Jane, there's uh, again so much that comes out in uh, in that discussion. And I think you know one of the first things you mentioned was the willingness of the child or the young person to engage in a, in a conversation that's going to lead to some decision-making. And, of course, I think sometimes kids, you know, they don't want to be involved in that decision-making and I think we need to respect that, although I must admit I think we need to be careful about just how much respect we give to that. I sense that younger kids, yes, of course... As they get older, they probably do need to be involved. And then really, you know, getting into the later teen years, we really want them to be involved. And in this situation, of course, um, they're the ones living without the leg. So as much as possible, I think, being involved in that decision-making ought to promote adaption to a new life um, without a leg. But then you raise the next level is, well, willingness, good, but what about truth-telling here? And that's a very big piece of work that we've been doing in the Children's Bioethics Centre. But, of course, you can't make any decisions if you don't know what's Mm. going on. And I'm sure that in the cancer space, perhaps particularly in the cancer space, parents find it hard to tell their kids.
2: Mm, They absolutely do. And some parents even say to us, please, we don't want you to use the word cancer. We don't want them to know. And we have to say, you know, obviously, depending on the age, we have to say, if they ask us directly, we need to be honest. And and sometimes we need to have the discussions with the families about ways to um, explain what cancer is to their child. Um, you know, like one child you know, a six-year-old. She was diagnosed with a neuroblastoma, very high-risk disease, presented not like most children do very unwell. She wasn't unwell on presentation. But we had to start this very aggressive treatment and it was making her sick. So every time she came into hospital, she just... Thought we were going to make her really sick, so she became very um, disruptive. It was difficult to nurse her. She was terrible with procedures. She had one of the worst procedural anxieties I've ever seen. And a lot of it, you know, I would talk to her mum about the fact that here was this healthy little girl that was happy and very smart on my ad, then coming into hospital and and were doing these horrible things to her. And it's taken a long time, but we've gently, gently worked with her. Um, One of the things was I started with talking to mum about what had she told her was wrong with her. And she said that she had a lump in her belly that we needed to give her medicine um, in order for her not to get really sick from it. So then I used a book that we have for a lot of kids with tumours and I sat with her and mum and we read the book. She read a few pages and then she was like, I don't want to know anymore." But then mum and I started to talk and then she picked up the book and started to flick through the pages and was pointing to things and that was my way of getting to explain to her you with mum as well, this is what's happening to you. this is this is where your 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 um tumor is in your belly. this is what will happen when the drip's hooked up. this is what will, she was already losing her hair so explaining and I think that really helped. But again, she was still terrified of procedures. So it was a case of our beautiful Comfort First people and lots of very sympathetic and and very patient people working with her to give her choices on how we did things. So this is a manner she would say, "I, I need to have this book to read. I need to have this solution. I need the sticker done first or that done. So she had some control. It took a long time and it didn't happen overnight, but she started to have some control about what was happening. And I, I think that's really important with these young ones.
1: I think one of the values of um, of having a team approach mm-hmm. to these young people, even, even as young as four and six, is uh, it, I think you know the the role that the um, comfort first or procedural play therapists have is so crucial. It means that the young person's got a clinician that's just for them, mm. that's their person, and can that that they have a little bit of control with, and who can facilitate them having that control and making those choices. So around for example, um, IV insertion or the use of a port where you need to put a needle into the port to allow chemotherapy to be given, that's scary for a child. But having someone sitting down with you and saying, well, there are all these different ways that we can do it, that we can protect you, that we can make this comfortable, that can make you feel like you've got a bit mm-hmm. of control over this. How shall we do it together is just absolutely gold. Um, you know, we've spoken about this before, John, that um, in I think in the, best, in the best possible world, if we had all the money in the land, then we'd have clinicians specifically for the young person, as well as clinicians who are looking after their parents and that decision making mm-hmm. piece as well. And that ensures that we have the voice of the child in our ear all the time when we're thinking about these treatment pathways, so that the child has that understanding of what's going on has the ability to make choices whether small or large and has a sense of ownership about their cancer journey because that that's how that's that's how we get joy as clinicians mm. right a child who was scared but comes to a space where they're actually initiating oh I'm I'm going to have my port accessed now this is the way that we do mm. it and showing the nurses what to do proudly mm. that's that's an absolute joy Um, And we know that those kids are going to do much better from a big picture point of view psychologically because they've been able to have that sense of ownership. Mm -hmm.
0: So I think you're describing too, Molly that, uh, that there's lots of small decisions within perhaps a big decision. So you might sort of hear of deciding with children and think, well, that's about kids deciding if they're going to have chemotherapy, cancer treatment, amputations, and that's all too big. Their parents should do it. But it's actually not really like that. It's that within that big decision are lots of small decisions, and maybe their preferences: left arm, right arm, tablets, IVs, other all sorts of different things. But as we involve the kids, and even as young as six or four, I heard that we can allow them to express those preferences and then act on them, so not just listen, but actually bring them into the decision. Uh, And that builds towards something bigger. And I think it's part of teaching them, as I think you're describing, Molly, to make decisions. And that does seem, as we said at the beginning, to make the whole thing go uh, a lot better.
1: I think that kids, particularly in in cancer treatment, kids can become incredibly sophisticated Mm. in their thinking from a really young age. And so it's... So, you know, there there are kids who have had years and years of cancer treatment that has worked for periods of time and then maybe stopped working. There are children who've had multiple relapses over time and those are kids who, who who've had practice and experience of therapy and practice at decision-making. And then when we come to a space where the decisions that we're making are around comfort care or around, you know, palliative therapies, the potential for therapies that might potentially prolong their life, but that come at a cost in terms of symptomatic um, ramifications of of therapies, those kids can have more of a role in those bigger picture decisions. And I'm thinking in particular of one of the most divine patients that I ever looked after, an eight-year-old Little little lass who had um, multiply relapsed leukemia. I'd actually known her. I was, I'd, I've been part of her. Um her cancer journey from when I was a junior resident in the oncology department when she was first diagnosed. And she had a five-year treatment history with multiple relapses at bone marrow transplant and other therapies. And at the age of eight, she relapsed for maybe the fourth or fifth time. Um, And uh, and at that time, I was actually working in a a palliative care role. And her mum asked to see me and she said, I think that she might have had enough of treatment and I wonder if you can sit with me and her and we can find out whether she wants to go ahead with this last clinical trial or whether she's had enough. And so this young person said said to us, you know, Mummy, I know, I know that I've had lots of treatment and lots of it hasn't worked and I will give this one go but if it makes me feel terrible, I don't want any more treatment and I know that I'll die. But, I, but that's what I want. Um and she gave it a go, and she didn't like it, and it didn't work. And she stopped having disease-directed treatment in collaboration with her parents. and that was the absolute right decision for this young person. She lived for many more months and got to do all the things that she wanted to do on her little bucket list, and it had it was an, it was an extraordinary experience to look after her and to hear her voice so strongly in that decision-making pathway and the relief that it gave her parents to know that she'd been able to make that call and that that was right for her and her family. You know, I still speak to her mum and we reflect on the strength of this little girl and how right her decisions were over time and it gives her family incredible relief um, for, for that, that pathway to have been followed.
0: I mean, it really sounds, Molly, in that case that the decision-making has been very much uh, with her, albeit supported by her parents, but really with her. And I think that we might think of young kids, early teens and older older teens. And that's sort of one way of framing it, and we're not really thinking of age as much as developmental stage and the sort of neurobiology of decision-making. But I think with that example, you're describing the lived experience of the disease. And if she was to walk off the street at 13, you may not give her quite as much leeway there. But she's older than 13 through her lived experience, and she understands the side effects and perhaps the good effects yeah. and therefore can make a decision
1: yeah absolutely and you know this is this is the thing that you've got that, that you've we've got a, a heterogeneous bunch of kids some of whom are really kind of sophisticated in their decision making and some much less so some wanting to be a really big part of decision making and some really wanting to hand that um, that, that decision making over to their parents um, and there's a big raft of different kinds of diseases as well, Um, some of which have really clear treatment pathways that are going to give you a very good outcome and some of which there's much more of a question about what the right path forward is. Um, you know, medicine is rarely black and white. There are often a number of different treatment pathways that you can go down. And while we can give a recommendation, we should give a recommendation as experts about what we think the best possible pathway is. There's still a space for families to express um, their values and and their preferences um, and for that pathway to maybe be tweaked a little bit. And that might be something as simple as delaying a cycle of chemotherapy to allow a child to participate in a birthday party or some really lovely event that they want to participate in. We can have that flexibility or it might be something a bit more big picture about whether or not to go on a clinical trial or whether or not to try an experimental medicine. But I, I don't think that there's any one cut off as to, you know, what this, this level of likelihood of good outcome, we're always going to say that the child doesn't get a say in that, you know, like more commonly it'll be a really individualised approach in terms of the capacity of the child to participate, the kind of disease and the kind of decision-making that we're actually looking at.
0: And, but if you don't ask, you don't know yeah. <laughs> what you're trampling <laughs> over and uh, uh, <laughs> trashing their values or their preferences there. Well what was fascinating about that case, and I'm going to get to Jane to expand a little on this, is that in that example the girl, the young girl, took up a large part of the space of the decision-making and her parents were there in a supportive role. But I sense in that very first example of the girl, a patient with the uh, bone cancer, and the father had some additional knowledge. And the way you're describing it, Jane, I sense that the father took a lot of space, perhaps, in the decision-making uh, at certain points yeah, he did, there. Yeah. And I think that is one of the things that often limits deciding with children in all sorts of, of contexts. The parents mm. are the legal and natural decision makers for their kids. They drive them here, they present the Medicare card, they might pay some bills. It's their kid, mm. huge stake in it. And, and But that doesn't always leave room for the kid. Mm. So how do we make room? And I think that's one of the things you do, isn't its mm. it? Is help. Mm. So how do we make some room for the kid
2: I guess in in this case I had to keep reminding him that she wanted to know, she needed to know. It was happening to her and she was old enough. I had to keep reminding him. He he knows what the outcome is going to be. He can see the big picture. She can't and she needs, you know, some help in processing what's happening to her. So, you know, whilst being respectful, like I was, you know, In the case of this one, Dad was more the one involved. Mum stepped right back. But I was very respectful that Mum didn't want to be part of it and she couldn't cope with it and she didn't want to see this happening to her daughter. Um, Hence why I then brought Dad into it a lot more, because he could cope with it. Um,
0: And did you get time with her alone?
2: Not as much as I would have liked, but yes. At but that time, was
0: one of your strategies that was to one try of my strategies. and get some space yeah. for yeah. her, because I think deciding with children isn't about cutting the parents out, but it is at least trying to enlarge the space. So it's not a fixed space. This is not Boyle's law. But I <laughs> it might feel think... like that though. <laughs> uh, the pressure goes up as <laughs> uh, the temperature goes up. Um, but but trying to, I mean, that's where slowing it down. Some but more... that's
2: also to get time with the child. Um, I could tell that I the parents had respect in me, and I think that's really important. You you've got to get their permission to have these discussions. So, I would talk to them. They had respect in me. They were happy for me to support their daughter. Um, I didn't go right out and say this is a terrible prognosis, but just brought her to where she needed to be. Yeah. I
0: think that's a concept that's emerging that I'm just getting a handle on called relational autonomy, whereby. The young person has that relationship with the care, the, the clinician, mm. uh, and perhaps their parents, and has their decision making supported. But at one of the foundations uh, is that relationship, um, yeah, uh, with the it's with important. the with the clinician. Mm. Um, Molly, what I wanted to think about, perhaps Jane too. What are situations so where the stakes are really, really high, and the young person says no when you think they should say yes. How do we deal with that?
1: That's a, that's a really tricky one, um, John. We We do get this from time to time. We get a situation where a young person really strongly does not want to go ahead with therapy that is life-saving for them. And, again, I think that the you know I, I think that the the key um, the the key factors here in helping to, helping us to come to some decision together is is really all about communication. We need to give the young person a space to describe what's important to them, what their understanding of the different pathways ahead is, and um and and what their fears and worries are. Um, and we need to be able to have a degree of flexibility in um, in what what different pathways might be available to this young person, particularly if they have an incredibly strongly held belief that has – sorry, a strongly held decision that they, they don't mm. want to participate in some particular type of treatment um, that's based on something that's meaningful to them. Um, And the only way that we find that out is if we ask them Mm. (laughs) and we often need, as, as Jane said, this is often an iterative process where we need to ask over a period of time, slow it right down, Mm -hmm. find some trusted people who are uh, some trusted caretakers, whether that be within the clinical team or in the family um, to, uh, to help to facilitate that young person's point of view and allow them to genuinely feel heard. Um, I guess there's also a practical piece. You know, you can't actually get a towering 16-year-old young person to succumb to intravenous chemotherapy if they say no and fight you. So you've got to – if they're going to have treatment, you've got to bring them along somehow, right? Um, I've got to say that it's actually really vanishingly rare – that we have a situation where a young person genuinely says, I'd rather die than have this treatment and I'm going to live that in reality. um, Generally, we can have enough of a good conversation with them over a a period of time with some good uh, supports around them to find a pathway that will allow them to undertake life-saving therapy. It will be... I can't think of a, a time when a kid's, when we've not actually been able to to deliver I think treatment. many years ago,
2: I remember one child, he was about 14, and this went to ethics <laughs> because it was really, he was, we couldn't pin him down. We couldn't sedate him. We couldn't make him. You know, it took a lot of work um, and a lot of people and People needed to win his trust and to really get in there and dig down at the nitty-gritty, what was this really all about? Because this was a treatable disease. Um, yeah, so that not not very often. Usually you can um, eventually bring them round.
0: So I mean I guess there are situations you're describing where the stakes are just too high mm. that you have to in a sense override well what might be their initial preferences. Mm. But somehow, with the approach we've been talking about, you get them round, and mm. think some of the people they're grateful afterwards. Yeah, for mm. having gone through that mm. and uh, got to the other side.
1: Yeah, mm. I think I think so, and I think that um um in my experience, when when there has been a disagreement that we've worked through together and kind of gotten to a better space together, and the young person's agreed to undertake treatment, I I think that they. Um, that they tend to come back a bit chastened as a, an older young person and say, "I don't know what I was thinking," um, <laughs> but but thank you for taking the time to to find out and to help me get into a better space. And you know, I think that as I said earlier, you know, there are often a, a whole bunch of different ways to skin a cat. So it may be that you can that you can find a, a pathway forward with a young person that might not be. The perfect or most straightforward or, or simplest treatment pathway, but that might actually that, that might still give them a very good chance, an appropriate chance of uh, uh, of survival or of, of a good outcome. That's a bit different from what you initially sort of anticipated. Um, so I think I think we can be flexible quite a bit of the time actually, and it just takes some creative thinking and some skilled communication um, to get there together. And, and I guess, oh, sorry. As the say,
0: Molly, you're describing too when those kids come back that, in fact, who are we responsible to comes up a lot in, in clinical ethics and it's to that young adult. Um, it's to
1: the person they become. They become.
0: So they are being surviving now, their cancer. Their beings, their <laughs> becomings, and then later on they're, they're, they say, you know, or well, they might have said, you let me do what? Or they say, well, thank you for for doing that, but there's a way to do it too that doesn't leave them with moral injury. But it's got a couple of points before we wind up um, to talk about because, Jane, you were hinting in some of your cases, what to me sounds like coaching, that you're getting time with the kid where you can, the young person, Mm. and trying to draw them out Mm. and help them make a decision, but you're also coaching the parent. Am I right in that?
2: Yeah, probably because the parent don't. Yeah, because the parents don't want the child to be told. It's like the like the parent will say, "Don't tell them they've got cancer. Don't say that word." Um, so yeah, I, I guess we are. We're trying to show the par- parent there's a way that can it can be done, but being respectful to their wishes as well. Um, it can be difficult. Yeah. I'm
0: seeing a situation because some people say, "Well, I'm the parent. Don't you tell me how to yeah. how to parent?" And that's a perspective. And we've we heard that a little bit at the conference. We heard that we were yeah. talking about this. But at the same time, this space, cancer and decision making for serious illness, is not in their normal wheelhouse, no. and that's difficult. And they're sort of learning to be a parent in that situation. Yeah. So I'm not seeing it as paternalistic. Simply as us with clinical experience the and experience, yeah. lived experience with them mm. to say, well, there's another way to do it. And can we help you to talk do it. with your kids, yeah. guide them in decision making? Well, we're also guiding them in decision mm. making mm. for the purpose mm. of bringing them along for the ride. Yeah. yeah. And I
1: think parents are actually often hungry for that um, yeah, for, for that help. coaching and yeah. that, that help. Um, and both about helping the child to understand their cancer, the fact that they've got cancer, helping the child to understand what the treatment pathway is going to look like. And then if the therapy is, it is unsuccessful or if the child is ultimately not able to be cured, help with helping the child to, to understand that they're not able to be cured in a way that's that's as safe as it can be, being honest but not not imposing... Understanding on a child where that is not wished for, um, I think that's important.
2: We really have to respect their parents' wishes. A lot of parents say they don't want us to tell them because they want to take their hope away. If we tell, if we say this to them, they will just die. You know, and um, you've got to respect that because hope is is huge a huge thing in life. And um, but it's also important to be honest with the parent. And with our experience going through many, many journeys with families, um, you know, knowing that when they come through it at the other side, they're, at, they're genuinely grateful for the input and for the suggestions,
1: but we have to respect their need to do it their way. Yeah, and parents have a, a great deal of experience and knowledge that they may not actually be aware of in how they can have that open conversation with a child. You know, we talk a lot about inviting a child into a space where they're able to pace a, a decision making and understanding at their own pace. So where they're where they're able to have some control in what they, um, what what the parent tells them or or what the the doctor tells them, um, and that that they have time to process that information in a way that's kind of acceptable and meaningful and and safe for them, and really the the only way that we we find out um, whether or not children want to know these things is is by asking them, mm. and and by by inviting them into that conversation. And my experience has been, you know, we talked about just now about um, coaching young people in decision making, coaching parents, but I find myself beautifully coached by some of my young patients, (laughs) my my beautiful 16-year-old young woman who said to me, who after I had openly let her know that she was unlikely to be cured from her cancer, later gently took me aside and said, I don't ever want to be part of that kind of conversation again. Could you please have that conversation with my parents first and then then you can bring me into it afterwards or they can tell me because that was too much. And I'm forever grateful to this particular young woman for, for, for bringing me up like that, really, for coaching me like that. And for, for me, I think that that's, that that's really given me a beautiful reminder that you must ask, you must ask every time, you must ask permission to, to, to give information to a young person um, and you, you've got to then respect, respect them when they say, I'm not ready for that information. <laughs> Leave me alone.
0: <laughs> so Molly, I think one of the last points I'd like just to explore briefly is we've focused on deciding with children, the children's perspective, and we've thought about the parents, and we've thought about how we as clinicians do it. But what's the effect of, of deciding with children, on staff,
1: uh, this is oh, this is huge. so huge. huge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, this is where moral distress comes yeah. in, right? When for for all of us as as clinicians, um, when we feel like we're imposing things on children without their assent, at least without their understanding, without mm. their their knowledge, and without some degree of compliance. Um, It's awful. It's awful to try and deliver Mm. care into that space. Um, When, as clinicians, we know that the child has participated in that decision-making, has participated in those discussions and has the opportunity to have a voice, um, it makes it so much easier for us to do our work, so much more satisfying Mm. um, to, to be able to care for these young people. I think moral distress in, you know in cancer care is really yeah. enormous. I see
2: so much mm. of it with the different clinicians that I work with. They've got it all built up and they have their opinion that they feel the child needs to know but the family don't want the child to know. And, you know, they just want to let it all out because that they're holding it all in and sometimes ultimately vomit it out, you know, like it can be like that. I've worked with surgeons who've come out and talked to a family without taking other people in and, you know, it's because you can see that they're wearing so much on their own shoulders and they feel the the need to, to get through this next hard time and then move on to supporting the family. Yeah, it, it, it is really hard. It's really hard for the nursing staff too. Um, I've had nursing staff. I've wanted to take a line out on a patient, and the patient's terrified, procedurally distressed. And I've had staff say, "This is this isn't right. You know, we need to give her a general anaesthetic. Sedation isn't enough." You know, they feel it.
1: You know, they definitely do. And yeah. often we're in so much of a rush. Yes. You know, we're in so much of a rush to give to deliver information or to get on with the next yeah. piece, or because we've got another patient waiting, or because mm. we we know that the Job's got to be done. The procedure's got to be done. So we just kind of want to crack on. It's horrible. Mm. It's it's really stressful. And I think that that's for for me, kind of emotionally, the experience, the interactions that I have regretted are the ones that mm. are rushed and that do not take the time to respect the young person, to be paced by the young person, yeah. um, and to to engage and enter into discussions with them in a way that's kind of concordant with their values and their timing and what's right for them at the time. That's where you get awful regrets. Mm.
0: <laughs> and but I think, Molly, you know, <laughs> because you're a thoughtful person and Jane as well, you're going to remember some of these times and learn those lessons. But mm. I think you must be getting it right a lot more of the time and it, because you've both been here for a long time yeah, and continue definitely. to do your amazing work, as along with so many of your, mm. your teammates mm-hmm. in, in the oncology service so but it it also sounds to me like involving the child and elevating that voice to deciding with children is also has a benefit mm. for the staff mm. and for ameliorating moral distress and giving you that sense of what you're doing mm. is the right thing mm. to do
1: i think we're actually pretty good at it yeah. in the unit i genuinely think that we're pretty good at involving children um, in decision making, but you can always do better, right? Yeah. And I think that the, this is this is one of the wonderful things about being a part of this podcast is that bringing bringing just the the phrase of deciding with children, bringing that more to the forefront of our minds when we're when we're doing our day to day work. You know, we can always do a little bit better. We can always bring the child's voice out a little bit more. We can always take the time to ask the question about what's right for them and how much they want to participate in this decision-making. And that's that's going to make our work more satisfying. Um, so I'm, I'm a um, I'm definitely, definitely a bit of an advocate for this, I well, think. Well, thanks.
0: <laughs> thanks, Molly, and thanks, Jane. I'm really pleased uh, to have such a positive note to finish on. And I think our conversation today really has shone a light very brightly on the power of deciding with children and we're sort of thinking about operationalizing it and how do we make it work and I think a very key thing for all of us is is time and creating time. Time to ask and elicit those values and preferences of the child to create space for the child, allow space for the grown ups, respect them, but allow space and time for the child to involve them if they want to be. And perhaps that's going to be another conversation where perhaps as they're older, they should be if they're ducking their responsibilities, if we see them like that. And then of course, that truth telling is at the bottom of this because we really need to be able to work with them by them knowing what's what's going on. And then we are respecting the person and that's intrinsically good. We're getting a better outcome in that the journey's better maybe even the outcome as you might think is better mm. and it seems to be good for staff mm.
1: yeah yeah well that helps us keep on doing our job yeah well
0: thank you for coming into essential ethics today molly
1: <laughs> thank you so much john for having me
0: and thank you jane
1: thank you john for having me
0: if you've enjoyed the podcast give us a rating and share it with your colleagues and friends Essential Ethics was brought to you through the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. This series was produced by Dr Georgina Hall, Education Coordinator at the Children's Bioethics Centre and recorded in the studios of the Royal Children's Hospital Creative Services. If you would like to learn more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, visit us at rch.org.au forward slash bioethics essential ethics be inspired